Good afternoon. It's Friday the 5th of January 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link, we have Vanessa Bailey from Damascus and Ben Rubin from London. So thank you both for joining. Uh, we're going to start off uh, with Epstein. And of course, the name that is, has been trending on X for the last uh, couple of days is Prince Andrew. Uh, we'll all remember the BBC interview where he has denied vehemently all the allegations against him with respect to Jeffrey Epstein and Epstein Island and so on. Uh, and of course, this trending is happening because of two document releases so far. There's supposed to be another one today. Um, the first one Wednesday was 40 documents uh, and uh, then even more released yesterday. And quite honestly, at this point at least, there doesn't seem to be anything much new in any of these uh, documents so far, but we, we will remain wait to see what happens next. Uh, the Miami Herald uh, has uh, made a request to the district court, uh, uh, Judge Loretta Preska, uh, attempting to get hold of the full list of names uh, and the full list of pseudonyms that are mentioned uh, unredacted from these documents. Um, and so we wait to see what happens with that and whether that brings anything new. Uh, but uh, the BBC, uh, of course, had to cover this uh, and they did it uh, here. Prince Andrew faces allegations from unsealed US court documents about Jeffrey Epstein. So this is from uh, yesterday. Uh, and I wanted to highlight one sentence from this. Prince Andrew is no longer a working royal and as such, Buckingham Palace does not comment on his behalf. And they left it there. So uh, that BBC quite happy uh, not to do any further digging on that at all. So this was the uh, first page of the first uh, document. Um, and uh, this, as I say, Honourable Loretta A. Prescott releasing these uh, documents and so on. So who has been mentioned? Well, the top three, uh, I believe, um, are Prince Andrew, mentioned 110 times in the two documents. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, mentioned 83 times. Uh, and uh, uh, Vanessa, sorry, you're going to have to remind me. Um, Alan Dershowitz. Thank you, Dershowitz. Yes, uh, <laughs> Epstein's, Epstein's lawyer uh, mentioned 166 times. All these people deny everything, of course. Uh, but uh, one of the uh, documents, so one of the, the, the um, quotes from the second batch of documents, of course, is from uh, Johanna Schilberg. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton likes them young, uh, referring to girls. Um, so the, the people on the list, uh, most of them, every as you read through the documents, uh, did you have any sexual relations with this person or that person or the next person? And the answer in each case was no. Uh, but obviously names going around like Michael Jackson, Stephen Hawking, David Copperfield, Cameron Diaz, Kate Blanchett, Leonardo DiCaprio, Bruce Willis and so on. Uh, and this is getting lots of social media traction. Uh, but we should not forget, of course, that uh, everyone's friend, uh, Bill Gates, uh, still has many answers to que uh, questions to answer as well. Um, so what can we add to this? Well, I just wanted to remind everybody about a little piece of video that was released by uh, Project Veritas in 2019 um, of, uh, of Amy Roback uh, from ABC News. Let's just remind ourselves of this. This was supposed to be an open mic incident, uh, supposed to be. I've had the story for three years. I've had this interview with Virginia Roberts. We would not put it on the air. Um, first of all, I was told, who's Jeffrey Epstein? No one knows who that is. This is a stupid story. Um, then the palace found out that we had her whole allegations about Prince Andrew and threatened us a million different ways. Um, we were so afraid we wouldn't be able to interview Kate and Will that we that also quashed the story. 
and then um, and then Alan Dershowitz was also implicated in because of the planes. She told me everything. She had pictures. She had everything. She was in hiding for 12 years. We convinced her to come out. We convinced her to talk to us. Um, it was unbelievable what we had. Clinton. We had everything. I I tried for three years to get it on to no avail and now it's all coming out and it's like these new revelations and I freaking had all of it. I, I, I'm just so pissed right now. Like every day I get more and more pissed because I'm just like, oh my God, we, it was, um, what, what we had was unreal. Other women backing it up. Hey, yep. Brad Edwards, the attorney three years ago saying like, aunt, like we, there will come a day where we will realize Jeffrey Epstein was the most prolific pedophile this country has ever known. And, I had it all three years ago. So do I think he was killed? A hundred percent. Yes, I do. Because you want he made his whole living blackmailing people. Yeah. There were a lot of men in those planes, a lot of men who visited that island, a lot of powerful men who came into that apartment. Now, following that, uh, then she released this statement uh, saying, as a journalist, as, Epst as the Epstein story continued to unfold last summer, so remember this was written in 2019, I was caught in a private moment of frustration. Uh, she's referring to that video clip there. I was as upset that an important interview I'd conducted with Virginia Roberts didn't air because we could not obtain sufficient corroborating evidence to meet ABC's editorial standards about her allegations. My comments about Prince, Prince Andrew and her allegation uh, that she had seen Bill, Bill Clinton on Epstein's private island uh, were in reference to what Virginia Roberts said in that interview in 2015. I was referencing her allegations, not what ABC News had verified through our reporting. Uh, the interview itself, while I was disappointed it didn't air, didn't meet our standards in the years and since no one has ever told me or the team to stop reporting on Jeffrey Epstein and we've continued to aggressively pursue this important story. ABC News said at the time not all of our reporting met our standards to air uh, but we've never stopped investigating the story ever since we've had a team on this investigation and substantial resources dedicated to it. Uh, and yet, despite all that, the, the full weight of the main, mainstream media, we seem to be no further forward today than we were uh, in 2019 or, in fact, prior to that uh, as well. So um, as with respect to Prince Andrew, of course, uh, we have at the UK column had some contact with him. Uh, particularly over this story, which was uh, abuse at the uh, uh, Oxford and Cherville Valley College, uh, this article published in 2011. Uh, subsequent to this article being uh, published, then we uh, found out that Prince Andrew was intending to visit the college, so we uh, invited him perhaps to reconsider that uh, uh, decision, and he absolutely refused to do so. So, anyway, you take that out of take out of that what you will. Um, it's many many questions still to be asked, but unfortunately. To, as far as I can see, up to this point, nothing particularly new in these uh, new releases, other than uh, we keep it in the public eye and we get a clue as to the type of people that we have uh, running this world at the moment. Uh, Vanessa, let's uh, move over to you. And uh, well, the question of genocide. Yeah, so um, quite extraordinary event in the sense that South Africa has now invoked uh, the Genocide Convention uh, at the ICJ uh, and the hearings will be held on the case against Israel on the 11th and 12th of January 2024. Um, I was 
looking for a review of the actual 84-page report by South Africa. Um, and I recommend people go to John J. Mersheimer's Substack to read what he says. Um, so it's an 84-page application that South Africa filed with the International Court of Justice on the 29th of December 2023, accusing Israel of committing genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza. It maintains that Israel's actions since the war that began on 7th of October are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national race and ethnic group in the Gaza Strip. That charge fits clearly under the definition of genocide in the Geneva Convention, to which Israel is a signatory. Um, he then goes on to say apologies for the dog barking. The, my neighbors suddenly decided to go on the roof. Um, the application um, provides a substantial body of evidence um, showing that Israeli leaders have genocidal intent towards the Palestinians. Indeed, the comments of Israeli leaders, all scrupulously documented, are shocking. One is reminded of how, uh, how the Nazis talked about dealing with Jews when uh, reading how Israelis in positions of the highest responsibility talk about dealing with the Palestinians. In essence, the document argues that Israel's actions in Gaza um, combined with its... I'll, yes. I'll, I'll read the rest right. of that, Vanessa. Hold on. So it says, uh, in essence, the document argues that Israel's actions in Gaza, combined with uh, its leader's statements of intent, make it clear that Israeli policy is calculated to bring about the physical destruction of Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, so uh, have you muted yourself? Sorry about this. Um, if we move on to the next slide, um, then he basically says the document goes to considerable lengths to put the Gaza war in a broader historical context, making it clear that Israel has treated the Palestinians in Gaza like caged animals for many years. It quotes from numerous UN reports detailing Israel's cruel treatment of the Palestinians. In short, the application makes clear that what the Israelis have done in Gaza since the 7th of October is a more extreme version of what they were doing well before October the 7th. And of course, what is Israel's reaction to this? Uh, they claim that it's blood libel. Israel slams South Africa for filing the ICJ genocide motion over Gaza. And in the text, what they actually say, South Africa's claim has no factual and judicial basis and is a despicable and cheap exploitation of the courts. The Israeli foreign ministry said in a statement, South Africa is collaborating with a terror group that calls for the destruction of the state of Israel. Fairly typical projection um, there. And going on to the White House, which claims it sees no evidence of acts of genocide. Genocide is one of the most heinous atrocities that any individual can commit. Those are allegations that should not be made lightly. We are not seeing any acts that constitute genocide. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said, during a news briefing in response to a question about South Africa's decision. And then if we can just play a video from the infamous John Kirby, who basically in about eight seconds um, proves himself also to be a genocide denier, if we can play that. South Africa's filed this 84-page lawsuit against Israel, accusing them of genocide. Israel says that this is blood libel. Does Washington agree? And where does this put Washington and Pretoria? We find this uh, submission meritless. 
counterproductive and uh, completely without any basis in fact whatsoever. What's interesting is that Israel has chosen um, a British legal expert to represent it in the International Court of Justice genocide case. Professor Malcolm Shaw will have to argue that Israel is in fact complying with international law and that extreme statements from Israeli leaders don't reflect official policy in Gaza. Now, of course, the hardest thing usually to prove over a case of genocide is that of intent. And that appears to be very clearly proven with the statements that are coming from um, the Israeli leadership. So Shaw also teaches a course at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem as a guest lecturer every year. In the first stage of the case, Shaw will have to contend with South Africa's request for an injunction ordering Israel to stop the war in the Gaza Strip on the grounds that it constitutes genocide. Through such an order, it could theoretically be enforced by the UN Security Council through sanctions. Of course, America would likely veto such a move. Nevertheless, an injunction could result in Israel and Israeli companies being ostracized and subject to sanctions imposed by individual countries or blocs. So we're at an interesting stage at the moment and a fairly um, pivotal one in, in what's going on, not only in Israel uh, and Palestine, but in the region. Um, Palestine's top diplomat to the UK, the head of the Palestinian mission, Hossam Zomlat has also warned the UK against Britain's complicity in Israeli ethnic cleansing after rumors that Tony Blair was going to be working on um, the displacement and uh, the repatriation in other countries of the Palestinian um, refugees in Gaza. Okay, thank you for that, Vanessa. Um, now, Ben, uh, let's welcome you to the program and come back to the UK then. Um, and uh, well, what's going on in the House of Lords? Is that den of thieves? Well, there's quite a lot going on there. I'm going to touch on um, one individual in particular, and as it relates to the topic of what I think is medical fascism, which defines our health system right now, and the revolving door between top-level government and private sector positions. Uh, uh, the individual I'm talking about is this guy, James O'Shaughnessy. He is a British conservative politician, the author of the 2010 Conservative Manifesto and also author of the Lord O'Shaughnessy Review, which came out in May last year. That is a review into commercial clinical trials in the UK. This is a top level strategy report setting direction for the whole of the UK health system. Two things to note, it's a very long report, so it's, it's about 80 pages long, but a couple of things that really jump out at me. The first one is on page one, it actually holds up the COVID vaccine task force as an exemplar of how the entire health system should be run. Actually, this is you've jumped ahead a little bit there with the slides. Um, secondly, it promotes full population participation in clinical trials as some kind of desirable end state for UK healthcare. Essentially, Lord O'Shaughnessy is suggesting that every member of the population should be taking part in a clinical trial as some kind of civic duty. Right, providing ourselves as lab rats for global pharmaceutical companies to test out their experimental chemicals. That's quite a remarkable thing to consider, but unfortunately unsurprising from this government. He also talks about a case study 
uh, of a joint venture between AstraZeneca, whose COVID vaccine had to be taken off the market because it was killing people, and digital healthcare provider Huma, H-U-M-A. Now, Huma is a World Economic Forum partner. So obviously that is a deeply inappropriate type of organization to have inside the health system. But unfortunately, again, this is unsurprising given all of this is happening in the context of the UK government life sciences vision, which is the slide that we had a little uh, sneak preview of a moment ago. So this is the Build Back Better document. I've spoken about this a few times over the past couple of months. Uh, this was released in 2021, signed by Boris Johnson. It has Build Back Better on the cover and in the opening statement, signed by the Prime Minister. And essentially, it sets out a vision for the NHS as a low friction, lightly regulated, digitally enabled, genetically engineered marketplace for the pharmaceutical industry and big tech firms to innovate and experiment on the UK population. So essentially, they're just doing what they said they were going to do. But this is where it gets interesting. We talked about the political side of things, but there is a market dynamic to this as well. And it relates to James O'Shaughnessy. So in 2021, two years before he issued his report, he founded New Market Strategy. This is a healthcare consulting firm focused on establishing new markets, get it, inside the NHS for global pharmaceutical and technology companies to essentially trade in our system. So you have here an individual who is not only writing policy, but also trading in the market that the policy is designed to govern. Yeah, that is a total integration of market and state. That is the dictionary definition of fascism and new market strategy sits right at the heart of it. Uh, they are hiring very senior people into leadership positions from the NHS into new market. They've been doing this very aggressively. I'm going to talk about two individuals in particular. The first one is this gentleman, the spectacularly named Blake Dark, who joined new market at the start of 2023. And he was before that in the position of chief commercial officer for NHS England. So he was responsible for around 20 billion pounds a year in drug procurement. He was also on the NHS England executive committee before that, he had a 25-year career in the global pharmaceutical industry. He was a sales director at Sanofi, which is one of the big providers of pharmaceuticals into the NHS, particularly uh, they're a big supplier of insulin. Um, there's a little roadmap here showing some of the stuff that he did during his career. Uh, essentially, this is just funneling lots of money to big companies and making sure that they're able to earn a decent margin on their drugs. Uh, more recently, and this is why this is particularly newsworthy, this cropped up in the past couple of weeks. So David Sloman has joined New Market Strategy. He joined right at the end of last year. Uh, and he is another extremely senior former NHS colleague. He was the chief operating officer of NHS England. So you now have the former chief commercial and chief operating officers of NHS England working at New Market Strategy. Uh, before that, he was the regional director for NHS England London. So he was, he was ultimately responsible for all NHS operations in London, from primary care to the London Ambulance Service, mental health services, absolutely everything. Yeah, before that, he was the CEO of the Royal Free London NHS Foundation Trust. He was knighted in 2017 for his services to the NHS. He's an NHS lifer, and he has now just joined New Market Strategy. How is this possible? 
I hear you ask, I don't understand how we can allow this kind of thing to go on in the system, but unfortunately, directors of NHS England are not crown servants and appointments after leaving are not reviewed by the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments. So this is completely unregulated. Apparently, they've done nothing wrong, despite the fact that this seems to be a total contravention of medical and business ethics. Uh, unfortunately, it just seems to be part of the course right now. Um, can we vote these people out? Is it just the Tories that are making these awful things happen? Unfortunately, it's not. As Debbie spoke about on Wednesday, Labour are also planning to open up the NHS to private entrepreneurs. We're streeting, was quoted speaking about this. And Labour's policies are being directed by Peter Mandelson and ultimately by Tony Blair. And I mentioned in the final news of last year that the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, their number one UK policy priority for 2024 is health investment, specifically radical embrace of adult vaccination, nothing sinister about that. And to help them achieve that, that goal, they've just employed again in, in the past couple of months, this fella, Ned Naylor, he is now a senior advisor for health reform at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Before that, he was the director of strategy for the COVID-19 vaccination program. So the vaccination program that we've heard so much about on UK column and elsewhere over the past few years that has caused indescribable damage to the UK population. The guy that was responsible for running the strategy for that now works for Tony Blair. Obviously, before that, he was an engagement manager at McKinsey, the global consulting firm, which is a training ground for a lot of these people. Uh, this, is, this is a revolving door. Uh, it's fascism. It's deeply, deeply inappropriate. And we're going to be talking about this a lot more over the next 12 months. This is the enemy that we're fighting against in the health system. Just a very quick final point. You would have noticed that the junior doctors are on strike again. Uh, we're going to start seeing this used as an excuse for excess deaths caused by COVID vaccines. I can feel it in my gut. I've already seen a few comments to that effect. You've got to keep your eyes open for that line of that line of narrative coming out of central government. Essentially, we, if we aren't paying the doctors properly, they can't take care of, take care of people properly. They're going to go on strike, which means the excess deaths goes up and it's got absolutely nothing to do with anything else. Yeah, they're trying to shift the blame and avoid accountability for what they've done. You're on mute. Uh, sorry, I do apologise. <laughs> seems to be a common problem today. Right. OK, we'll start that again. If you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please uh, check out community.ukcolumn.org. There are options uh, for you to help us out there. Uh, you could pick up something at the UK column shop, uh, but uh, please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially from ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk and make sure you scroll down the page if you're looking at ukcolumn.org and you will find a spectacular uh, article by Vanessa Bailey and Dr. Pierce Robinson uh, there. It's in the comment section. Please go have and have a look at that. Uh, now, yesterday uh, at 1pm, we put out the interview that I did with Ben Pyle on climate change. Um, that is on the front page of the UK column website as well. If you haven't seen that yet, please do have a look because it is, uh, Ben is a very interesting uh, guy with a lot of interesting things to say. So have a look at that. Uh, now, on Sunday, as we mentioned, at uh, 6 p.m. UK time, uh, we're hosting, on behalf of the International Centre for 9-11 Justice, uh, this uh, symposium uh, called Genocide and Empire. This is examining October the 7th and the geopolitics of the war in Palestine. Uh, it's going to be moderated by Dr. Pierce Robinson, 
Uh, it'll have Professor Richard Falk, Professor Atif Kabursi, Vanessa Bailey, Dr. Aaron Wood, Kevin Ryan speaking. Uh, that is going to be an extremely interesting event. Uh, do watch that live, 6 p.m. Uh, on Sunday, if you can. Um, now, Debbie uh, pointed me at this yesterday uh, because there's a, an opportunity for everybody to sign up for the MHR Innovation Accelerator. Uh, this is all about nurturing innovation in academia. Uh, so the MHRA uh, uh, Innovation Accelerator provides innovators in academia access to leading scientific expertise and regulatory guidance. And there are still a few tickets left. It is free, I believe. So if you want to uh, uh, take part in that, ask a few questions maybe, uh, that's on Eventbrite uh, and you can find it there. And finally, a, a reminder uh, that Andrew Bridgen is hosting another debate uh, on trends and excess deaths on the 16th of January uh, in uh, at the House of Commons. That begins at 9.30 a.m. And he's asking for people to write to their MPs uh, and encourage, let's say, encourage them to attend. Uh, so I think that would be a very appropriate thing to do. Okay, uh, we'll move on then to Ukraine. Uh, and... Uh, well, the Ukraine foreign minister ministry has put out this statement uh, saying in the last couple of days saying NATO members have backed Ukraine's request for an emergency meeting of the NATO Ukraine Council. And of course, why are they doing this? Well, they're doing it because they're pretty upset at the moment that everyone's attention has moved to Palestine and nobody really cares about Ukraine anymore. At least that's how they perceive it. Um, and uh, of course, why would they? Because Ukraine has effectively lost. This is an embarrassment for the for politicians in the West. Um, uh, but anyway, they are demanding more support. Uh, NATO, at least, is paying lip service to this, and they have announced their uh, military committee on uh, in Chiefs of Defence session that's taking place on Wednesday, the 17th of January. And if you look to the bottom of the list there, uh, the session five is the Ukraine Council uh, in uh, Chiefs of Defence format. Um, so they are uh, certainly, as I say, paying lip service to this idea. Now, uh, NATO uh, have said that they intend at that meeting to discuss Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, the situation on the ground, uh, and NATO and allied continued support uh, for Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian foreign minister then uh, had this to say, uh, that as far as they're concerned, air defence is a key issue. Now, uh, they didn't uh, suggest any timescales for when they would want as improved air defence, um, they certainly didn't suggest any timescales for, for when uh, they would be expecting the next tranche of support. Um, but uh, uh, that is the key issue for them. Uh, they didn't have to wait long for an answer, though, because uh, yesterday NATO announced this. They're going to buy 1,000 Patriot missiles to enhance uh, Allies' air defences. Uh, uh, actually, that was on Wednesday. Uh, and uh, they say in this NATO support and procurement agency will support a coalition of allies, including Germany, the Netherlands, Romania and Spain, to procure up to a thousand Patriot missiles to strengthen their air defences amid Russia's war against Ukraine. Um, and well, this deal is uh, going to be a big one uh, because uh, they are going to um, effectively set up a manufacturing in Germany for these Patriot Patriot missiles. So this will be done with a $5.5 billion contract to Comlog, which is a joint venture between uh, Raytheon in the US and the German company MBDA. Uh, and uh, that uh, order will support the setup of a production facility for Patriot missiles in Germany. So they, the military industrial complex doing very, very well out of this whole thing, even though uh, the war is effectively uh, being lost. Um, 
in the meantime, what's Poland up to? Well, here we go. This is uh, Radosław uh, Sikorski. Uh, we should respond to the latest onslaught in Ukraine that language that Putin understands by tightening sanctions so that he cannot make new weapons with smuggled components and by giving Kiev uh, long-range missiles that will enable it to take out launch sites and command centers. Uh, he then went and spoke to uh, Joseph Burrell, who's, of course, the European Union's sort of foreign minister, uh, and uh, Burrell saying that on Wednesday they had a good discussion with Sikorsky. Uh, we shared increasing concerns over intensified Russian air attacks against Ukraine civilian infrastructure. We agree, agreed on the need to enhance our military support to Ukraine, including with long-range and anti-aircraft missiles. Um, so then uh, he went on to follow that up by saying, we also discussed ways to reinforce anti-sanction circumvention measures since the significantly increased European exports to third countries could be re-exported to Russia. So the question is, why uh, does Ukraine see it as really important to deal with their air defences? Uh, perhaps uh, occasionally the defence intelligence in the UK does publish something maybe as useful. Uh, they say that since the 29th of December 2023, Russia has increased the intensity of its long-range strike operations against Ukraine. Its forces have committed a significant proportion of the stock of air-launched cruise missiles and ballistic missiles that built up over recent months. Uh, the recent strikes likely... Well, just before we move on, actually, just consider that for a second. Uh, air-launched cruise missiles and ballistic missiles that Russia has built up over recent months... Uh, the UK, the US, the EU, of course, haven't built anything up over recent months. We have uh, expended all our reserves and aren't really uh, able to replace those terribly quickly. Russia seems to be doing a lot better. But I believe that from the beginning, we were told that the target was to destroy Russia's economy and end its ability to wage a war. Doesn't seem to have worked. Uh, but anyway, putting that back on for one second, they go on to say the recent strikes likely primarily targeted Ukraine's defense industry. This contrasts with its major attacks last winter, which prioritized striking Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Russia appeared to restart this campaign by hitting energy sites in early December 2023. Uh, these new operations suggest that at least a temporary change of approach in Russia's use of long-range strikes. Russian planners almost certainly recognize the growing importance of relative defense industrial capability as they prepare for a longer war. So that's where we're at at the moment. Ukraine in real trouble because... They've effectively lost. Uh, they are seeing reduced, if not uh, support ending uh, for them at this point in time. And everybody's eyes turn towards the Middle East uh, and they're not happy about it. Um, so let's, uh, Vanessa, turn our eyes back to the Middle East and the question of the possibility of expansion of the conflict. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely looking at escalation that we were talking about um, before Christmas. And from Christmas onwards, we've seen a series of events that have demonstrated the escalation in progress. So first of all, um, I think that was on New Year's Eve. The U.S. sinks Yemeni boats enforcing the Red Sea blockade against Israel. Of course, Yemen has made it clear that not only will it attack Israeli boats or Israeli-owned boats, but it will attack any vessel that is taking equipment or cargo to Israel itself. Um, and then we have, we, we've had various threats also from the UK to carry out airstrikes against Yemen. They haven't materialized and Yemen is, is quite rightly saying, uh, if you're just going to threaten and you're not going to follow through, how can we uh, have any respect for your statements? So this is uh, published by the White House. House a joint statement, what I call the coalition of the unwilling, 
um, the United States, uh, Australia, Bahrain, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Germany, Italy, Japan, Netherlands, New Zealand, Republic of Korea, Singapore, and of course the United Kingdom. Noticeable that Saudi Arabia is not on there. It seems to be wanting to focus on fostering peace with Yemen and ending its own proxy war on behalf of the US and the UK against Yemen that started in 2015. So I think within um, the text of the statement, it's very clear what is actually driving this desire by the US to escalate against Yemen. Um, they claim, of course, it threatens innocent lives. No lives so far have actually been lost in the 25 operations that have been carried out by Yemen and Ansarullah. Um, they constitute a significant international problem that demands collective action. Here we get to the to the nitty gritty, let's say nearly 15% of global seaborne trade passes through the Red Sea, including 8% of global grain trade, 12% of seaborne traded oil, and 8% of the world's liquefied natural gas trade. International shipping companies continue to reroute their vessels around the Cape of Good Hope. And then moving on, um, Mike, uh, so then they basically say, let our message now be clear. We call for the immediate end of these illegal attacks, illegal attacks. So it's fine for the U.S. to come to the support of uh, Israel against the Palestinians, um, but it's not fine for Yemen to, to retaliate on behalf of the Palestinians against uh, Israel and the United States. Um, we call for the immediate end of these illegal attacks and release of unlawfully detained vessels and crews. The Houthis will bear the responsibility of the consequences should they continue to threaten lives. They said no lives have been lost in the operations. The global economy and free flow of commerce in the region's critical waterways. We remain committed to the international rules-based order and are determined to hold malign actors accountable for unlawful seizures and, and attacks. I don't think I need to comment on that. Um, Yemen has responded, we will continue to prevent Israeli ships or those heading to the ports of occupied Palestine from navigating in the Red and Arabian Seas until food and medicine is brought into our brothers in the Gaza Strip. The Yemeni armed forces also confirm that any American aggression will not go unanswered or unpunished. We warn the American enemy or others against any attack or action that represents the protection of commercial ships that go to the Zionist entity. Then it's quite interesting because um, the news has broken that the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier is returning home back to the US after extended deployment defending Israel. Um, and the USS Batan and its accompanying warship, the USS Mesa Verde and the USS Carter uh, Hale, the three vessels have been in the Red Sea and have been transiting towards the Eastern Mediterranean. So does this mean, Mike, that they are effectively leaving the area where they might be under threat from the Yemenis? Um, I think that's a good question to ask. Then um, going forward, we had basically on the 2nd of January, um, the, sorry, no, this was on Christmas Day, um, Israel assassinated Iranian commander in Damascus, General Mousavi, who was responsible really for the liaison between uh, the resistance in Syria and the resistance in Iran, and was a very close comrade of uh, General uh, Qasem Soleimani. Now, he was, as I said, targeted on Christmas afternoon in a very busy civilian area, and there were 
casualties. So this is international aggression and terrorism under international law. Then before Christmas, we spoke about the fact that Israel is trying to push Hezbollah um, military to the north of the light blue line, then the Litani River, um, invoking UN Resolution 1701 that came into effect uh, during the 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah. Of course, that has been unsuccessful, but the rhetoric has been very much about, uh, for example, if they don't do so, then uh, according to Netanyahu, um, Beirut will be turned into Khan Yunis, which is in the south of Gaza. So on the 2nd of January, one day after New Year, senior Hamas figure Salah al-Aruri was killed in Lebanon, in Beirut, in southern Beirut. So this is a direct attack on the capital of Lebanon in the south. And again, there were civilian casualties and there were other casualties. They targeted his, his home in Dache, which is an area of southern Beirut. Who was al-Aruri? Well, the Israeli newspaper Yediat Aronoff characterized Marta Sheikh al-Aruri as the mastermind of the operations in the West Bank and who pulls the string there. The Mossad chief has been quoted as saying Israel is committed, is committed to finding and killing all Hamas leaders globally. And he mentioned uh, the fact that they were able to target them even in Iran. And of course, then on the 3rd of January, we saw dozens killed in the Kerman explosion in Iran on the fourth anniversary of the assassination of Qasem Soleimani that was carried out under the Trump administration. Um, now, interestingly, Islamic State have claimed responsibility for the Iran bombings that killed at least 84 civilians that were attending his uh, burial place in Kerman on the anniversary of his assassination, and 173 were injured. Um, interesting, as I said, that ISIS are claiming responsibility. ISIS, of course, is a proxy of both Israel and the United States in Syria. So one can argue, particularly after the statement by uh, the military intelligence uh, officer, that they would hit targets in Iran, that potentially there are Mossad hands on this attack also. And then on uh, the 4th, we had another assassination. This has been uh, claimed by the United States against one of the uh, commanders of the PMU, the popular mobilization forces that have been responsible for battling ISIS inside Iraq and on the border with Syria. Um, US claims responsibility for an attack on Iraqi official in Baghdad. And again, there were civilian um, and other casualties after the attack. The claim by the US is that they carried out this assassination because of the attacks on unlawful US bases in Syria and um, bases in Iraq. Of course, now the Iraqi administration is demanding the exit of the US occupation forces in Iraq. And I just wanted to point out here where this escalation is taking us. So we looked before Christmas at the map of Greater Israel. You can see that, in fact, um, three of the capitals have been targeted since Christmas, Damascus, Beirut, uh, and Baghdad, and of course, the, the heinous uh, bombing attack against civilians in Iraq. And if you wanted any further proof that there is escalation in the pipeline, let's have a look at the Defense Minister of Israel's comments 
um, Yoav Gallant said basically uh, no top Hamas figures have been killed or captured in Gaza on a visit to soldiers, soldiers station there. Yoav Gallant said the government was planning for a long war and the feeling that we will stop soon is incorrect. Without a clear victory, we will not be able to live in the Middle East. So this is turning into an existential war um, for the survival and existence of the Palestinian people, the survival of Israel as a military garrison for the US and UK in the Middle East, and of course the countries of the resistance axis. So inevitable escalation, Mike. Uh, it's interesting that everywhere you look, everybody's planning for a long war. Uh, and I just yeah. wonder, is, is is the aim here in, with certain policymakers and, and strategists to, to try to keep uh, things um, relatively low intensity, but keep extended as as much as possible? Because there's, there's lots of uh, uh, political capital to be made from that type of uh, strategy of tension, if we could use that term. Yeah. Um, definitely, I would agree. Um, but it remains to be seen, of course, the response from uh, Hezbollah, uh, the Iraqi resistance, and even from Syria if the Israeli aggression continues. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Vanessa. Ben, let's come back to the UK. Uh, now, you've mentioned uh, Democracy Next before, but let's uh, have a look at them again. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's just interesting you there talking about this being a pivotal year, a pivotal year. I think it's a pivotal, a pivotal year. Goodness me, that's difficult to say for some reason today uh, for humanity, actually, and not least to do with uh, democracy, the democratic process, the voice of the people and uh, for people who are looking to undermine the, 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 the voice of the people and the democratic process. And as you say, we've talked about an organisation called Democracy Next before it is a non-partisan, aka uniparty, non-profit, which means it's backed by billionaires and their state, including the uh, George Soros Open Society Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, um, their stated aim is to move us into a new democratic paradigm. So we're going to move from a paradigm of elected representatives and parliaments, elections and voting, which they say delivers polarisation and confrontation. And they want to move to the next democratic paradigm of citizen representatives and permanent citizens assemblies, representation by sortition, which they say will deliver broad consensus and common ground. Now, we know this is wide open to abuse by virtue of who convenes and controls the information going into the assembly that informs the decision-making process. Absolutely crucial question. Um, and to, to give you a little bit of insight into that, beyond the Soros and Rockefeller foundations that we've already spoken about, we can look to the founder of Democracy Next, Claudia Chalice, who is a French woman and also an Obama leader for Europe at the Obama Foundation. So that means that Obama, who invaded seven countries during his two presidential terms, believes that Miss Chalice has demonstrated a commitment to advancing the common good. And actually, let's hear from Obama as we head into this crucial election year. Understand, it's not necessary for people to believe this information in order to weaken democratic institutions. You just have to flood a country's public square with enough raw sewage you just have to raise enough questions, spread enough dirt, plant enough conspiracy theorizing 
that citizens no longer know what to believe. Once they lose trust in their leaders, in mainstream media, in political institutions, in each other, in the possibility of truth, the game's won. Is that a warning or is that a playbook? I'm not sure. Um, but citizens' assemblies are going to be front and centre in how the democratic process develops this year. Uh, they're already being used in Ireland. We've talked about that previously on the news, and they are beginning to raise their head across the UK. William Hague is a fan. He wrote about them in The Times on Christmas Day. Uh, he is encouraged that somewhere in this gathering darkness, of hatred, lies, and opposing cultural identities, as Obama's just described, there are open-minded and constructive citizens willing to turn on a light. Thank goodness for open-minded, constructive citizens like William Haig, willing to cut through partisan politics, hatred and lies. Haig, often seen recently working closely with his former political adversary, Tony Blair, on important issues such as science, the single issue all our dreams depend on, uh, as well as getting together in person with Blair to do that funny hand thing that they like to do together as well. Um, now, naturally, all of this is being linked into climate action. Climate action. Remember COP? How great was that? Yeah, We're going to reach an even more fevered pitch on the climate this year. Uh, we can see here Scientific Journal of Record Nature doing its part to reduce collective expectations about future prosperity. They say that citizens' assemblies could be set up with mandates to formulate socially acceptable sufficiency strategies. God, that sounds depressing. And strengthen policies, i.e. give more power to government. These would be based on ecological limits, fairness and well-being for all and include a stronger role for trade unions. So far, so communist. Uh, Nesta, who we've spoken about many, many, many times in the past on UK column, the UK Social Impact Innovation Lab, which was set up by Tony Blair in 1998, and it now owns the Behavioural Insights team, the Nudge unit that is owned by Nesta. They are actively promoting citizens' assemblies and sorticians specifically as it relates to climate action. So this is coming out from the centre, but it's already playing out in frontline politics. So Oliver Coppard, mayor of South Yorkshire, can be seen here breathlessly describing a recent assembly used to inform decisions about net zero policies in God's own country, Yorkshire itself, as unlike any room I've ever been in. Goodness me, that sounds exciting. And it's also being used at the other end of the country as well to answer the same net zero questions by Cornwall Council. This letter was sent in by UK column viewer Andrew Harry. Thank you, Andrew, for sharing this with us. And this is for a resident energy panel which is the same principle ultimately as the Citizens' Assembly. This is being run by the Sortition Foundation, who are very closely linked to Democracy Next. This time it's with 50 citizens that are being offered 375 quid each to participate. And the panel, as it says here, will follow an established democratic engagement process that is used all over the world 
It brings together a group of people selected by lottery who broadly represent the entire community. The people who attend learn about the issues, discuss them with one another, and then make recommendations about what should happen and how things should change. But all of this, of course, is based on an a priori assumption that we are already going to transition to net zero, right? So that's the context within which decision-making is being made. Uh, we talked a little bit about the UK, but this is an international movement. Um, uh, uh, Democracy Next is an international organization, um, and it's deeply embedded into emerging technology. So we're starting to see this um, alignment between uh, democracy and technology, which is uh, frankly terrifying. Uh, just before Christmas, Democracy Next announced a strategic partnership with the Center for Constructive Communication at MIT Media Lab, which is the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And in their announcement, they said that their aim is to harness powerful AI technologies to create constructive, tech-enhanced and human-led systems shaped by the proven model of citizens' assemblies worldwide. Right? This is a proven model, apparently. Now, it's worth noting, uh, given how the show started, that Joy Ito, formerly dean of MIT Media Lab and a board director of the New York Times, was forced to resign his positions in 2019 for soliciting funds from Jeffrey Epstein for MIT and his own personal investment funds after Epstein had been released from jail for child sex crimes, worth noting. Uh, and it's also worth noting where all of this could potentially end up. If we fuse democracy and technology, democracy and artificial intelligence, and we get the right level of public acceptance, it's entirely possible that they may no longer see any need to consult with citizens at all. Uh, you had a little bit of video, Ben? Yeah, that was... Please run the video. Yeah. The technology now is, and uh, digital technologies mainly have an analytical power. Now we go into a predictive power, and we have seen the first examples, and your company very much involved into it. But then the next step could be in, to go into a prescriptive uh, mode, which means um, uh, you you do not even have to have elections anymore because you can already uh, predict what uh, predict, and afterwards you can say, why do we need elections? Because we know what the result will be. 2024. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, uh, sticking in the UK then, um, quite a bit of uh, publicity over the last few days and a couple of weeks uh, over the Horizon IT scandal in the UK post office. Now, this uh, uh, drama series, Mr. Bates versus the post office, has been getting lots of uh, coverage and so on. Um, but just to remind everybody what this is about, uh, the post office uh, installed an IT system which was absolutely full of bugs. Uh, into uh, various post offices around the country. And of course, these were run as a franchise. So the people, uh, the sub postmasters running these places uh, were effectively self-employed. Um, they were, of course, required to account for every penny. And the Horizon IT system was supposed to uh, maintain records of all the financial transactions that went through the post offices. Uh, but the problem was, as I say, this software was full of bugs. And as a result, uh, discrepancies appeared uh, between what the sub-postmasters said they were uh, processing and what the uh, IT system said they were processing. Um, the uh, post office maintains its own uh, capability for investigations and prosecutions. It prosecuted uh, many of these sub-postmasters. Some of them went to prison. 
Some of them committed suicide following everything that happened. Many of them went bankrupt and lost everything. Um, and of course, uh, it all turned out to be completely fraudulent on the part of the post office and Fujitsu, uh, the company that was uh, providing the IT system. Uh, of course, nobody from the post office nor from Fujitsu has gone to prison for what happened. It was only the sub-postmasters that did. And in the meantime, of course, uh, not only are the post office now dragging their feet over uh, paying compensation to those affected, uh, although some people are dead, so they can't receive compensation. Um, in the meantime, they've been paying their own managers uh, extra bonuses uh, if they've done particularly well uh, during the uh, the inquiry, the public inquiry, which is going on at the moment. Um, so anyway, this is the uh, website for the Post Office Horizon IT inquiry. Uh, do have a look at it if, if you want to know. And I just want to highlight one person here, uh, and that is uh, Andy Dunks. Now, he uh, is, was a crypto key manager uh, for, for Fujitsu working on the Horizon IT uh, program. And uh, he was basically the man who sent out the notices to sub postmasters saying, uh, that you know, effectively, the software could do no wrong, uh, and if there were mistakes, they must be mistakes at the sub postmaster end. But when he was giving evidence in 2019, he uh, said this. If we put it back on, on screen for a second, uh, there was no Fujitsu party line. In other words, uh, there was no sort of line for, from Fujitsu about the uh, the appropriateness of uh, Horizon to be uh, providing uh, correct information. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, that turned out to be untrue, and when Justice Fraser uh, reported on that uh, uh, evidence, he, he said, Mr. Dunks expressly sought to mislead me by stating that there was no Fujitsu party line when it came to the contents of drafting witness statements about audit records for legal proceedings. There plainly is. It was used in the Fujitsu statements in 2010, and it was used by him in his statement for the Horizon Issues trial. Um, now, um, Fujitsu then, the uh, senior manager at Fujitsu, wrote to Darren Jones, MP, about this. And in this letter, which is part of the public record, uh, he said that in many cases, employees and key de and decision makers are no longer working at Fujitsu. If it emerges that any current employee intentionally misled the court or otherwise failed to meet the standards expected from Fujitsu, then they will be dismissed. And again, it's quite interesting that uh, uh, Mr. Dunk uh, Mr. Dunks has not been dismissed, despite the fact that the judge found that he had, in fact, attempted to mislead the court. Um, so uh, that is the situation there. Uh, I'm just going to make the point very briefly that, you know, uh, Ben was talking about uh, AI there. Um, at, the, at the base of this whole thing is an unwillingness by anybody to accept the possibility that the software was wrong. Uh, and so individuals... Uh, were taken to court, prosecuted and found guilty of crimes they did not commit because the software said so. We are already seeing ourselves uh, building a world around us where humans are taken out of the equation completely and are being replaced with what's being marketed as AI. There's nothing artificially intelligent about it. It's just badly written, in many cases, computer algorithms. We are setting ourselves up for a major fall here, Ben, and I think we need to... Uh, really consider that uh, in the coming months? I, I absolutely agree. Yes, I think the technology digitization has gone 
far too far and it's not just open to abuse it's open to the kind of um, fundamental problems that, that you just described there uh, and actually um, you know this leads in quite nicely into what I'm going to talk about just just to finish things off here which is that the you know that our youth who have grown up in a purely digital world are being stolen from us essentially they are being propagandized on a constant basis by the establishment uh, and uh, this has been going on not just for the past few years, this has been going on in many ways for centuries. They say that um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I came across this organisation called Young England, which was established in the 1840s. This is a political group uh, which was um, uh, uh, based on an idealised feudalism, an absolute monarch and a strong established church with the philanthropy of noblesse oblige as the basis for its paternalistic form of social organisation. So this was led by Benjamin Disraeli, the, um, the, 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 the prime minister to be. He wasn't prime minister at the time that this was running, uh, but he did become the prime minister uh, a couple of decades later. And the idea behind the organisation was to quell social unrest in the face of the huge transformation taking place driven by the first industrial revolution, right? Uh, and it was set up by philanthropists at the time. And you can read that directly towards people like Soros and Rockefeller that we've been talking about earlier on today. Um, interestingly, Disraeli also said that the world is governed by different personages from what is imagined by those who are not behind the scenes, which also feels incredibly relevant today. So that was the first industrial revolution. We're now on to the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, but as I say, the playbook remains largely the same. There is a, there is a rhyme here, uh, and the youth are being heavily targeted and propagandised. The world is still governed by different personages and what is imagined by those who are not behind the scenes. That's what we spend our time talking about here at UK Column. And we've previously spoken about the extreme left-wing UK youth charity, My Life, My Say, and its connections behind the scenes to Tony Blair, David Cameron, Sadiq Khan, the Royal Family, the Rothschild Family, the US State Department, MI6, yada, yada, yada. There's a whole, it's just the tip of the iceberg that I've touched on there. We're going to hear much more about them as the year goes on because targeting Gen Z, the under 30s, and if you remember from what I spoke about this previously, uh, the big My Life, My Say event had an age restriction on it. If you were over 30, you were not allowed to attend. I couldn't go to it, right? So this is um, a very deliberate effort to, to isolate and propagandize a specific subset of the population. And this um, fantastic, fascinating, slightly grim report came out just before Christmas, which I wanted to draw your attention to, which you should go and find and read. We'll put this in the show notes. And this is basically a directive to business to tell them everything they need to know about the generation changing everything. Right? This was issued by Oliver Wyman, which is a big consulting firm, and the news movement I've spoken about previously. Um, and uh, essentially what they're saying here is uh, can a single generation save the world? Have you got it in you, Gen Z? It happened in the 1940s when the so-called greatest generation successfully turned back fascism and ushered in a long period of stability and rising living standards. Now come what may be, uh, now come what may be the rightful heirs to the mantle, a consequential generation that may be humankind's best and greatest hope in the existential battles against global warming, inequality, political and social unrest, uh, transgenderism, all of the hot topics that um, these young people have been immersed in over the past few years. 
Um, Oliver Wyman's UK chairman, so I just mentioned that this report came from Oliver Wyman. Uh, he's, the UK chairman is this fella, Hugh Van Steenis. This is a photo of him speaking at an event hosted by Tortoise Media, who are a My Life, My Say partner. I shared this previously because it was of particular interest because that event was convened by Tortoise editor James Harding and Lord Jacob Rothschild. So this is the provenance of the report that I've just drawn your attention to. This is where it's coming from. And it's also been issued by this funky little crew, the News Movement, led by Kamal Ahmed, the former Guardian and BBC editor. You can see him on the right-hand side there. He's spoken about this project at the World Economic Forum. He's also a host at Anthropy, the WEF by the Sea event that we've spoken about numerous times and will continue to do so. Um, this isn't just about these two organizations or that report. As I said, it's absolutely everywhere. I'm going to do a separate piece on uh, how this is being uh, planned and executed by a whole range of different charities, including the British Council, the British Youth Council. They're in on the game. They have a program called the UK Youth Parliament, trying to get Gen Z involved in politics. Now, look at that image. And what do you immediately see? Yeah. So for me, the question is, well, where are the where are the natives and where are the men? Right. This is a fundamental shift in public life. Who goes into parliament? Who stands at the dispatch box? You know, this is not me saying that I don't think that it's appropriate for um, immigrants or, 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 or women to be in politics or be in public life at all. Um, but the way that that's positioned, and again, if you go to the My Life, My Say website, you'll see exactly the same thing. You go to the Anthropy website, you see exactly the same thing. The people they're putting front and centre do not look like the native population of the country, and that's being done on purpose. This is the future that they're trying to construct. Yeah. And by the way, I should just say no offence to any of the young people in that photo or any of the other photos that we've been showing here, whether it's the My Life, My Say event or elsewhere, this isn't about you. We're not attacking you. Uh, what we're pointing out is that the establishment, the people running and funding the organizations that are, um, uh, that, that are promoting this narrative do not have your best interests at heart. It's not just about us. This is about you too, right? And this ends up in an extraordinarily bad place, right? We've seen this used elsewhere. This is the same tactic used with Greta Thunberg and uh, mobilizing young people around climate change. And ultimately, their end goal is to demonize the old in the minds of the young, right? And this doesn't end well. And I, I'm going to share an image with you now um, that was taken in the S21 torture chamber, to Khmer Rouge torture chamber in Phnom Penh, which is the capital of Cambodia. Uh, I've been in that room, and that bed is still in that room. The body's not there. This was taken when they found the torture chamber, which is in an old school in the center of Phnom Penh. And that bed, uh, as you can see, saw and played host to the, mo the most unimaginable atrocities. And the worst torturers, yeah, the people who were the most enthusiastic and psychopathic and vindictive and evil, the worst ones in those torture chambers were the young. Yeah, it was the 15-year-olds, the 16-year-olds, the 17-year-olds, because they had been convinced by the Khmer Rouge that the old were their enemy. They were evil. That all of the evils of the world could be placed on their shoulders. 
And unfortunately, the ideological environment that we're in right now leads us directly to that kind of behaviour. And this is an extraordinarily dangerous thing for politicians and the establishment to be doing. And unfortunately, they know it. You know, this is deliberate and we need to bear this in mind. And I don't want to end this on a, on a sour note or a negative note, but let's just think about this. And, and if you know anyone from younger generations, with, you know, 30, uh, 20, like however old they are, please reach out to them. Start building those connections. Start demonstrating that um, we're not evil. We are not the enemy. And that actually the people who are pushing these messages are the people that need to be pushed back against. Okay, Ben, thank you very much for that. Uh, and we are going to have to leave it there for today. Um, we will be back, of course, at 1pm as usual on Monday. Uh, if you're a UK column member, we'll be back in a few minutes for some extra. But uh, otherwise, have a great weekend and we will see you then. Bye bye.